I'm Marty Moskowain. Welcome to The Connection. We spend about a third of our lives in slumberland. Although it may look like everything is calm and quiet when we're asleep, our bodies are actually hard at work. They're helping restore our brain and immune functions, strengthening neural connections, synthesizing memories, repairing bones and muscles. A good or bad night's sleep profoundly affects our mood and ability to function during the day. While we all need sleep for our survival, just like food and water, there are still some mysteries about what happens during those so-called off hours. And while humans are designed to sleep, it's a normal and natural process. Millions of Americans report problems getting to sleep and staying asleep. So today on The Connection, what the heck is sleep? How to get good quality rest and how to deal with the problems that keep us awake. And we have two guests who have joined us. Jade Wu is a sleep medicine psychologist and researcher at Duke University School of Medicine, wrote a book called Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. Jade Wu, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. And here with us in our Philadelphia studios is Indira Guru Bhagavatula, and she's a professor of sleep medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and nice to have you with us on The Connection as well. Thank you for having me. You know, I was thinking about babies and toddlers and what they look like when they are <laughs> sound asleep, whether they're asleep at night or taking a nap. And if I can start with you, Jade Wu, when we look at a baby sleeping is that what good restorative sleep looks like, at least from the outside? Actually, babies sleep very differently from adults. They enter active sleep first. So that's uh, kind of equivalent to what we call REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. During rapid eye movement sleep, adults are actually not moving other than, you know, the eyes that are rapidly moving. Right. Our bodies are actually more or less paralyzed. Whereas uh, babies enter this stage of sleep directly, you know, when they fall asleep and they look like they're active. They will suddenly move their limbs, they'll make noises, they'll chirp and whine. Uh, so it's actually a, a pretty different picture. Well, Indira, and I wanted to dispel some of these myths about sleep, but even just this notion that when we go to sleep, us adults, or even teenagers, that everything is calm and quiet, but actually what's happening inside is pretty extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Um, I describe it to my patients the way, uh, you know, a building can be full of activity during the daytime. Um, but just because you leave and go home at night doesn't mean that it shuts down. The cleanup crew comes and they put things away. They restock supplies that were used. Um, so a lot of functions happen that are restorative and also cleanup activities. After burning energy all day, we generate metabolic waste products that need to be um, dealt with. So, so they're cleaned out, The right? clean out functions happen, the restocking and getting ready for the next day. Well, let's walk through some of those levels, and I'll go back to you, Jade Wu. Let, let's start with with light sleep, and I guess that's that feeling when you begin to sort of drift off into slumberland. What is going on there? So light sleep is stage one and stage two. So stage one is the lightest level of sleep. This is where we're easily woken up. Some people call it restful wake because you're kind of in that twilight zone. You're not really sure if you're asleep or not. And that's just a few minutes that serves as a transition zone from being awake to being asleep. And that's where our bodies start to relax. Our heart rate starts to slow a little bit and our attention starts to really drift. Like maybe you're reading a book and you're reading the same sentence three times and you can't quite concentrate. <laughs> um, whereas stage two, we're 
getting a little bit deeper now. Now our uh, body temperature is uh, continuing to drop. You know, our heart rate's starting to slow, uh, continuing to slow down, and we really, most of us, feel pretty out of it at this point. Um, a good sleeper, if you poke them awake during stage two sleep, they'll say, "Oh, why did you poke me?" Hmm. Uh, but funny, funny enough, my patients with insomnia. If you poke them awake during stage two sleep, they're actually pretty likely to say, "Ah,、oh, you know, I was just twiddling my thumbs over here, waiting to fall asleep." So stage two is a funny stage where we might feel awake, but we are actually asleep during this time. And here, let's talk about deep sleep. I guess that's the third level of sleep. What is going on there? Yeah, that's a, a beautifully described. Thank you, Jade.、Um, <laughs> so yeah, we're talking about non-REM sleep at this point. Non-REM stage one and stage two. We spend only like two to five percent of the night in non-REM stage one, and about half the night in non-REM stage two. So clearly, it's important. And then non-REM three is that really. Deep, deep, luxurious, wonderful stage of deep sleep. If someone were to wake you up, you'd have no idea where you are.、Uh, you're confused. That's the really good stuff.、Um, and then we have what's called REM sleep, which is a rapid eye movement sleep, and we also call it paradoxical sleep. Yeah, it's、um, it's very different from non-REM. So non-REM stage、uh, sleep, when you、uh, look at electrodes on the brain and you look at brainwave activity. Um, you will see that the brain waves, for, compared to non-REM one to two to three, the brain waves start to get slower and slower and slower,、um, and bigger and bigger in amplitude.、Um, but the muscles of the body are active, so you have a sleeping brain and an active body.、Hmm. Whereas in REM sleep, the paradox is that the brain, if you put electrodes on, it will look like a waking brain.、Uh, so it's very active. the The waves are tiny; they're all mixed frequencies. Um, but the skeletal muscles, meaning the muscles in the arms and legs and the you know, voluntary muscle groups, are all paralyzed.、Um, with the exception, literally mean paralyzed. Paralyzed, with the exception of the eye muscles and the diaphragm that helps us breathe. So you can see if you lift up the person's eyelids, their eyes may actually dart back and forth. And we believe that、uh, most dreaming happens during REM sleep, and it kind of makes sense when you see those brainwave activities,、uh, the brainwaves looking so active. So Jade, I, I, what I what I hear、um, Indira describe is kind of body off, brain on when it comes to REM sleep. Yeah, that's a great way of describing it.、Uh, the the brain waves during this time are very frenetic looking, looking almost as if we are awake. Um, but the body is a little bit paradoxical in the body too. Although the large muscle groups are paralyzed, we do also have、um, high, uh, higher frequency heart rate during this time. So, in some ways, the body is still active. So REM is really kind of an, a fascinating state of consciousness. Let me go back to to deep sleep or this third level of sleep, and and I mean, it seems like there's a lot of work going on in in the body. In yeah, it's fascinating.、Uh, Non-REM stage three sleep is seen very heavily、um, when we're young.、Um, so young children have a lot of it.、Uh, teenagers have more of it than we do, and as we get into adulthood, the amount seems to drop off. And interestingly, growth hormone gets secreted during non-REM stage、uh. three, and that again makes physical sense to have a lot of growth hormone secreted and a lot of N three sleep during the phase of life when our bodies are growing a lot. And, and we're we're building things and repairing things. Exactly.、Right? Yeah.、Mm-hmm. And, and going back to REM, Jade, is that what, that's where if we are, I guess, do we always dream? It's just that sometimes we remember and sometimes we don't. Is dreaming and REM are those closely associated? 
Yes, they are. So it's a bit of a mystery still. We don't, there's a lot we don't know about dreaming. But yes, most dreaming happens during REM, although some dreaming can happen during other stages as well. And yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting stage. Often people mistake REM and deep sleep and they think interchangeably about them. But as Indira said, they're actually two separate stages where deep sleep is really more about releasing those growth hormones, sex hormones, about the reparative and restorative functions. Whereas REM seems to be more about the emotion regulation, the dreaming, and the cognitive functions that happen in the brain. And are our limbs paralyzed so that we don't act out our dreams? Yeah. Jane? That's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> if we're sleeping in trees, especially, we really don't sure. want to be acting out dreams and falling off. And, you know, it's protective of our bed partner, too. Um, some folks who have REM behavioral sleep-wake disorder, which is when their muscles are not deactivated during REM sleep, they can actually act out their dreams and accidentally hurt themselves or their partners. Wow. It's that vivid, India. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is the fascinating thing about REM sleep. It allows us to dream, but to dream safely so we don't hurt ourselves. So you have these um, ascending neural pathways that that cause the brain to look very, very active and also descending neural uh, pathways that turn off uh, activity to our what are called skeletal voluntary muscles. Um, And, you know, it's it's amazing the, the that 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 that's so important for memory and it's so important for uh, regulating emotions and you know attention and cognition so many things happen as a result of that stage mm-hmm. of sleep i mean can we think about it as a kind of night therapy whether we whether we remember <laughs> it or not indira <laughs> sure <laughs> kind of while yeah, we're sleeping we're also getting therapy yeah. uh, although you know what's really funny about rem sleep is yeah. that we often see that people with depression tend to wake up too early in the morning. Uh, And because REM sleep mostly, well, it happens throughout the night, but the bulk of it really happens in the morning hours. So there's a theory that, um, you know, REM deprivation actually boosts mood. And so when people have depression, it's like their brain is kind of self-medicating by decreasing the amount of REM that they experience to actually boost their mood. Now, this does not work as a long-term solution necessarily, but we do see that with antidepressant medications, for example, it can have the same effect. We have less REM sleep, waking up early in the mornings to cut that REM sleep off um, in order to boost our mood. And we're not really sure why that happens. Yeah, go ahead, India. There's a, it's, that is everything that Jade said. Uh, absolutely. We cycle in and out of REM sleep a, about every 90 to 120 minutes or so. And each successive REM period gets longer and longer. So the longest one is at the very end of the night. So the people that are using an alarm clock to get up in the morning mm-hmm. are the ones that are selectively truncating, not just total sleep, but also REM sleep. Um, but yes, there have been trials that have been shown that, that have shown that if you um, sleep-deprived people, their mood elevates for t- temporarily, but chronic sleep deprivation, that is not, we can't manage uh, depression that way. And then That's as right. you deprive that REM sleep, our body wants it back, our brain wants mm-hmm. it back, so uh, you get to REM sleep quicker in, in subsequent nights after a period of REM sleep deprivation. Let me pick up on something you said about um, memory and REM sleep, the idea of sort of consolidating our memories? Is that, is that what's happening as much as we know about REM? Yeah, in, a, in order for us to remember things, there are a couple of things that have to happen. One is that you have to first encode the memory and take it in. 
The other is that it has to get consolidated with, you know, um, with good sleep and also sometimes with repetition. And then there's the third phase of actually being able to retrieve our memories. So, um, you know, if we're sleep deprived, we're inattentive to begin with. So taking in the information in the first place uh, can become more challenging. So the group that this affects, I think, are um, teenagers, uh, children who are expected to learn, especially in in schools, um, in secondary schools. And we can talk more about this, but the physiology of teen sleep, are sh- it, it shifts so that they want to go to bed later and wake up later. And yet we're telling them they have, they're the first group that they have to get to school earlier than everyone else. The buses pick them up early. So they're losing that last bit of REM sleep continu- consistently. So they're chronically sleep deprived, chronically REM sleep deprived, yet expected to learn and process emotions and some of the most challenging emotions that they'll have uh, in their lifetime so far. So that's a very vulnerable group um, in, in our among us, that where the system, the solutions are system based. Indeed. Well, we have much more to yes. talk about after this very short break, and we are talking about sleep in all its manifestations. And that's uh, Indira Guru Bhagavatula, and she's a professor of sleep medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Jade Wu with us as well. She's a sleep mess, uh, excuse me, sleep mess, uh, medicine psychologist at Duke University School of Medicine. Much more after this short break. We'll be right right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia, and we are talking about sleep. And again, our guests are Jade Wu. She's a sleep medicine psychologist and researcher at Duke University School of Medicine, wrote a book called Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. And here with us in our Philadelphia studios is Indira Guru Bhagavatula, and she's a professor of sleep medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Jade, I want to go back to you, and then I do want to move on from these stages we've been talking about, including REM. But how many times do we kind of cycle through these these essentially four stages of sleep in a in, in a typical night? In a typical healthy night, about four to six times. Although I I would say, like I said in my book, <laughs> I don't like to call it cycling no, <laughs> through stages because it's like saying the Rolling Stones are cycling through chords, right? It's just missing the beauty and the messiness of it. Um, and like Indira mentioned also, you know, our bodies naturally adjust, our brains rather naturally adjust to our uh, recent history of how much sleep and what type of sleep we have gotten, you know, what our current needs are. So depending on what the circumstances are, we may have fewer or more cycles of sleep or have different proportions of different stages of sleep. And that's something I think is uh, really wonderful to know and reassuring to know, because if you had a rough night last night, that doesn't mean that's lost forever in a way, because your brain does know how to adjust and and, um, give you what you need in the moment. Yeah, go ahead, India. Yeah, I would say your brain keeps score. It knows what you did, and it knows what <laughs> yes. you didn't do. You're not in trouble, And it right? will come right back, yes. And and, and so um, if you missed out on REM sleep, if you missed out on um, stage N3 sleep in subsequent nights, you will have greater proportions of those stages. It's fascinating that, that your brain worked so hard to get them back. Um, the, the ones that you missed. Well, and it underscores, and I'll go back to you, India, it underscores that 
sleep is natural. I mean, we're supposed to be able to do this. It's stuff. a biological imperative. We have to have sleep. It's a myth to think we can get by without. So, um, you know, and there are m- plenty of people who say, oh, I just got used to it. I, I don't need as much. You know, my body's gotten used to it. Um, and that's simply not true. Um, instead, you have something called a sleep debt uh, mm-hmm. that accumulates over time. So the longer you go without sleep, the longer you it's just like owing money to somebody. The more you borrow, the more you owe. With interest, probably. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Jade, going back to you, I mean, do does everyone need eight hours? I mean, how much variability is it for humans to to get the kind of sleep that they need? Not everybody needs eight hours. Eight hours is a good general headline to aim for if we're going to, you know, if we only had one headline to give to everybody in the world, let's say eight hours, that's fine. Uh, but the range is closer to seven to nine hours for most adults. But that also depends on your age. For example, a young adult, like someone who's 19 years old, they probably need closer to nine. Whereas someone who's just about to retire, they probably need closer to seven. So it depends on your age. It depends on your lifestyle. It depends on your genetics. And uh, we also just all have individual um, variation, too, just like we vary in height. Well, and and this is a really basic question, Indira, but... How do we know? Are we the seven-hour-a-night a, a person, or are we the nine? How do you know? Um, well, your body will tell you. <laughs> it's based on how you feel. Body keeps the score. You yeah. know, one way, one way to know is if you are able to get up in the morning habitually without using an alarm clock, that means you're probably getting your fill of the required sleep for you. Um, and if you're chronically needing, you know, a lot of prodding to get up in the morning, then something's off. Right. And Jade, you say there is a difference between being tired and being sleepy. And again, this, this, these are really basic questions here, but uh, define those two for us. It, it may be a basic question, uh, question or idea, but you'd be surprised at how confusing it can be. So sleepy is when you're about to fall asleep soon. Right. That's when you're, you know, you're carrying that sleep debt or it's just about time and uh, you're about to fall asleep. That's it. Whereas tired can be you know, a a whole range of causes. You might be uh, bored, you might be dehydrated, you might have been sedentary for too long. There are lots of reasons for feeling tired. And the really important reason for distinguishing between the two is that often people try to answer the wrong need. So if you're feeling tired, you may not need to go to bed and sleep. But if you're sleepy, treating you know, drinking more water is not going to help. So knowing whether you're actually feeling sleepy or feeling tired gives you a clue for what your body actually needs. Go ahead, Andrea. Yeah, and I I think that's a great description. And another way to think about it is this feeling sleepy means you you feel like you could fall asleep, right? You either slightly, moderately, or have a strong urge to fall asleep. Fatigue, we think of also in terms of in the physical realm, necessarily not necessarily sleep-wise, but you could be fatigued if you're anemic or as a side effect of a medication or because of cancer chemotherapy or because you just ran a marathon. Um, but it really, we think of it more in the medical realm as something that affects the body physically. Um, and, and the word fatigue comes up also in um, occupational settings where sure. fatigue refers to are you able to perform a task the way it's supposed to be performed? Um, and, uh, you know, yeah. But are you saying so? If you're tired or fatigued, don't go to don't don't go to sleep. 
Um, no, <laughs> look at look beyond what could be contributing to that feeling. Um, it could be sleep and sleep deprivation, or it could be something else, and it might be worth exploring that with your physician or healthcare provider, so that uh, you get to the bottom of what that's what that's from. Jade, let's talk about what we do during the day and how that affects how we sleep and the importance of literally sunlight or sunshine and just help us sort of walk through the day. Why is that so important for our for our sleeping lives? So everything that happens in our bodies uh, runs on a set of clocks. This is called the circadian system. So almost every cell in your body has a circadian clock. Uh, your organ systems, you know, your behaviors, your hormones, they all run on these clocks. And the way that our brain can tell what time it is in order to keep time for the clocks is by how much light is entering our eyes. So if you live in a cave where there's no light, no, you know, indication whether it's light or dark outside, then you will lose your circadian rhythms. Your your clock will kind of lose count or kind of run free and become, you know, more than 24 hours long and things will get messed up. But if you have a very strong set of light um, cues during the day, for example, opening your blinds first thing in the morning or better yet going out for a walk, then your brain can tell, oh, every 24 hours this hmm. event happens where I get this big, strong blast of light. That means it's time to set the clock again. And if you're um, if your circadian system is nice and happy and predictable, then your sleep and everything else that functions in your body will go better. I'm thinking of people that live in northern climates where you, maybe you get an hour or two of of sunlight during the winter, Jade. Does that screw people's circadian rhythms? It sure can. Yeah, sure. that's why people in northern latitudes are more likely to have depression, too. Um, it's because, you know, our bodies and our brains just need that light cue to help us uh, functioning and sleeping well at night and functioning well during mm -hmm. the day with good mood and good concentration and just ability to up and go. Right. And yeah. Yeah. So um, our bodies respond to many environmental uh, cues for when is it time to wake up? When is it time to go to sleep? So when you exercise, when you eat, um, when you watch TV, when you um, get exposure to it. But light is the strongest one. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's so critically important. And morning light in particular is very important. That seems to help us um, with um, when should all of these processes occur? When should your body temperature be at its highest? When should it be at its lowest? Um, and melatonin is a very important regulatory hormone in that aspect. And what uh, it's a marker of what's called circadian phase, which means uh, when is your internal clock uh, um, knowing that it should turn on versus off. And what allows for the secretion of melatonin is dim light. Um, so that darkness in the evening is really important. Mm -hmm. And then light in the morning is very important to shut off uh, melatonin and to allow your brain functions to, um, you know, take on your day. I'm thinking of all those other lights that we are exposed to. Exactly. The television, mm -hmm. the cell phone, the, you know, the iPhone, all of that. So, and the other big thing that's coming up right in front is um, um, daylight saving time. Daylight saving, yeah. so yes. that's in the next, you know, so the, uh, you know, March 10th, I believe it is this year. So it's, um, what that does is that it takes away the morning light and redistributes it so it happens in the evening. Right. Um, and it's actually counter to our internal processes. What aligns best with our internal circadian clock is to stay on standard time year-round. And that is the um, time period when the sun is highest at 12 noon. 
and our bodies seem to be best adapted Mm. to that. And we function best when that solar clock and our internal circadian clock and our social calendar, our, our what time do we have to get up and go to work or school? When all three are aligned, that's when we function our best at our best. So daylight saving time, what we're about to enter, is actually counter to what our uh, hmm. biology is aligned for. Well, Jade, I mean, it sounds like we've created systems, including school days and daylight savings, that are counter to what we need in terms of getting a good night's sleep. Correct. So call your Congress people. (laughs) Actually, it's really important, really, really important. And we know that on the day after daylight saving time starts, we have more heart attacks, more car accidents, Uh, not because, you know, one hour's time change will magically make you have a heart attack. But if, you know, on a population level, if there are lots of people who are sort of on the verge of having a heart event or just missing car accidents in the morning when they drive in for work, you know, if we have people miss one hour of sleep and have their circadian system be misaligned by a whole hour, that's, I mean, that's a recipe for trouble, not just for that one day, but for the entire season of daylight saving time. Yeah, go ahead. And, and for to inform the future, we can look at our past. We tried this before in 1973. It lasted for one season. People hated it, and then they had to go right back to where we were. Yeah. Other countries have tried it. The UK tried it. Russia tried it. And in all situations, they went back because people were miserable. Dark mornings are difficult. And as Jade mentioned earlier, morning light is what is used for treating depression. And we're basically under permanent daylight saving time. We're taking that away. So um, people, there are going to be areas of the country, if this is a national thing, you know, areas of, for example, Michigan, Montana, um, North Dakota, where you may not see sunlight until 930 in the morning. Wow. Um, and here it could be 820 in the morning on the East Coast. So it's, it's very... Um, counterproductive to have, um, you know, that type of uh, uh, light exposure. It doesn't match what we need internally. Well, and, we- as, and and children died in the morning. When we tried this before, there were uh, some children that died. Um, died why? Um, car accidents. Oh, from car accidents. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So because we have drivers, we're already sleep deprived on the road. And we're talking about in that first week of the switch, we're talking about making them even more very acutely sleep deprived. And then chronically over the summer months, you're taking away the morning light, which is very important, adding all this extra evening light that's going to delay the melatonin uh, secretion and delay the phase, our circadian uh, rhythm. Well, we are talking about light and sleep, and that is uh, Indira Guru Bhagavatula. She's a professor of sleep medicine at the University of Pennsylvania here in Philadelphia. And uh, Jade Wu is with us as well. She is a sleep medicine psychologist and a researcher at Duke University School of Medicine. Jade, let me ask you, and then I don't, I do want to get back to some really sort of everyday issues related to sleep. But I wonder, before the invention of electricity and light bulbs, did our ancestors sleep better than us or sleep differently from us? (laughs) <laughs> it's hard to say because we can't really go back in time and ask them. And we just didn't have the sort of sleep measurements back then that we do now to compare things. But we do have some historical records showing that perhaps they slept differently, at least. So we know that in pre-industrial Europe, for example, uh, people tended to keep what's called biphasic sleep. And biphasic sleep just means 
having your main sleep period, which is at night, in two chunks. Hmm. So people will have their first sleep for several hours, and then they will get up and visit their neighbors, sing songs, bake bread, all of that. And then after a couple hours, they will go back for their second sleep. And this was perfectly fine for them. And there's actually good reason to think why there might be a natural intermission in the middle of our night. And uh, for one, uh, the qualitative difference between the first and second half of the night is that in the first half, we have more deep sleep. So going back to that non-REM stage three that Indira, uh, Indira was talking about, that's the really important restorative rejuvenating sleep and the brain kind of prioritizes that and does that in the first half of the night because it's so important and then after that we get most of our REM sleep which is also important but not quite as life-saving right so the qualitative uh types of sleep we're getting are different from the first half and the second half and also the the fuel that drives the first half of the night is homeostatic sleep drive this is like your hunger for sleep hmm. this is what you build up throughout the day every moment you're awake and active bonus points are if you're exercising you know you're saving this up throughout the day hopefully you saved up enough to buy yourself a good night's sleep and that's what's really driving that first half and then the second half uh, your sleep drive has pretty much run out by then. The second half of the night is really driven more by your circadian clock. That's your you know, uh, internal clock that's telling you, well, it's not quite time to get up yet, so let's sleep some more. And that's why we have that intermission in the middle. Well, and I wanted to, and Indira, going back to you, um, for those people, myself included, that wake up in the middle of the night trying to get ourselves back to sleep, it's often suggested, no, get up and do something. Is that sort of fit what our perhaps what our ancestors were doing in the middle of the night? Um, so that's a really great question. You know, there are uh, studies of um, t societies that don't have electricity that still, you know, tribal groups, um, and they don't have the sleep disorders we have. True. They don't have the insomnia. They don't have the sleep apnea. They um, sleep and they wake up and they, you know, and they, they also have different looking bodies than we do. They don't have the obesity rates and so forth. So I think there's a lot that goes into how much sleep we get and how well we sleep. So what are you putting into your body? What are you eating? What are you uh, drinking? Um, but then if you're in the, in the middle of the night and you can't sleep, the things that my patients tend to do a lot is to go on their uh, electronic devices sure. and look for distractions. And so what you're introducing at that point is blue light. And as I said, and as we discussed and Jade mentioned earlier, is that we are exquisitely wired to wake up when there's light. Um, so your brain thinks, oh, the sun is up, time to get up. So, And it is specifically light in the blue wavelength. There are cells in your eyes that are not the rods and cones. They're not the cells that are responsible for vision. It's an entire third set of cells whose job it is to pick up blue light. And when blue light hits, they get excited and send a signal to the brain that it's time, time to get up, time to get up, shut off the melatonin, let's go. So it's really important that if you do go on a device that you, um, you know, use the settings to make it the, the least bright and use the blue filter and or wear blue blocking glasses. Um, so that's one thing. And if you're in bed and you know you're not going to sleep, it's really important to leave and go do something else that is very, very boring and dull and will mm -hmm. relax you. And then when your eyelids are extremely heavy and you're ready to fall asleep, you go back into the bed. It's, we're like, it's the Pavlov experience, right? We're conditioning our brains 
uh, to stay in bed and worry and toss and turn and do all those other things. The longer we stay in bed and the longer we do those things, your brain says, oh, this is the place where I'm going to worry. Right. So after three or four nights of tossing, turning, your brain goes right back to that pattern. And so, so you have to break the association. Break the association, exactly. Jay, we're almost up on a break here. Anything quickly you want to add to that? And then we'll pick up after after the break about sort of how the, the bed becomes the enemy if you're having struggles going to sleep or staying asleep. Yeah, just some quick math. You know, if you have one hour of insomnia per night, that's 365 hours that you have taught your brain to be worried and frustrated in bed over the course of a year. That's a really long time uh, to be making that association. So, of course, people develop chronic insomnia if they stay in bed and worry and toss and turn. And toss and turn. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take that very short break. We'll get back to our conversation. Talking today on the connection with Jade Wu and with Indira Guru Bhagavatula about sleep and how to get a good night's rest. We're going to take a very short break. We've got a lot more to talk about after this short break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Today on The Connection, we are talking about sleep. We spend about a third of our lives hopefully, supposedly, in sleep and talking with uh, Jade Wu, again, a sleep medicine psychologist and researcher at Duke University School of Medicine, wrote a book called Hello, Sleep. Also with us is Indira Guru Bhagavatula, and she's a professor of sleep medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Let me go back to you, Jade, because I think sleep is this sort of weird paradox. As someone who has struggled with sleep from time to time, well, you can't control it. I mean, the idea, if you want to fall asleep, is you have to give up control. And yet when you're struggling, you feel like, I have to figure out how to do this thing and get <laughs> myself to sleep. Speak to that. Yes, that's such a good point. The way I like to think of it is, you know, sleep is something you develop a relationship with. And you don't want to have an overbearing relationship where you're on top of it, controlling, dictating, saying my way or the highway that is not good for a human relationship, not good for your relationship with sleep. But we also don't want to be neglectful. That's bad for human relationships too. You know, if you don't prioritize having good sleep environments or setting aside time to wind down and sleep, uh, that's not a good relationship with sleep either. So we want to find a beautiful, happy medium where we provide the structure and the environment and the habits that support good sleep. But then after that, we let go of right. the minute you know, control because at that point, any additional control and management is only going to scare sleep away. <laughs> and we don't want to scare our good friend sleep away. Exactly. And dear, you and I were talking about vulnerable communities and, and thinking about people who live in, let's say, higher crime rate communities or are working three jobs yeah. or they're a single parent or they've, you know, they have a lot of stresses in their lives. And, you know, all the things that we're talking about are really almost impossible to manage under those circumstances. Yeah, and that is a, a sad uh, reality. And um, it's, this, it's the unfortunate reality for a lot of my patients that they live in environments or in um, household conditions that make it impossible to sleep. So 
Sleep is not equitably and fairly distributed. It is not automatic and it's not a given. So those people that have, you know, their wages are just not enough to keep up with their expenses. Uh, they can't afford the rent, but, you know, they so they end up, you know, working a lot of hours. We have a limited, biologically limited capacity for how many hours we can work in a right. given day. That's driven by biology. Um, and yet the demands can be that they have to go beyond biological limits. And it's not just those groups. It's many occupations that are, require 24-7 staffing. So, you know, you think about emergency medical services, you think about health care, um, you know, the, the, you know, you're working uh, during times of day that are not biologically when you're supposed to be working, right? So the people who are working the graveyard shift. Um, so, and then there are people who live in unsafe environments. They tell me that I'm afraid to go to sleep. I don't feel if I'm afraid I'll miss something that's, that's happening that, that, that requires me to get up and, and defend myself. So, um, you know, definitely environmental safety is a very important driver. Indeed. And Jade, I mean, that's arousal when, when we are kind of prepared and on guard for something to happen. Absolutely. That's where our fight or flight system, the sympathetic nervous system is activated. And that can be chronically activated for someone who lives in an unsafe environment, like Indira said, uh, or they just have chronic stress or they have to be hypervigilant. Lots of my patients with post-traumatic stress disorder also experience this chronic uh, hyperarousal. And this arousal will override your sleep drive. So even if you have moved around all day, you've been awake for a long time, you've Maybe you've even exercised. You've saved up a lot of that sleep drive to earn yourself good sleep. But if that arousal is super high, that will still override the sleep drive. And just to tack on one more point about what Indira said about the sleeping environment, it's not even just about the immediate inside the house or inside the apartment environment. It's outside, too. Sure. We have really fascinating satellite data showing that um, neighborhoods with more green cover have people who sleep better. Hmm. compared to those who uh, whose neighborhoods don't have as much green cover. And that's because of things like heat, noise, safety levels, and just uh, the, the socioeconomic uh, status of those neighborhoods contributes a lot. So, you know, even as climate change is driving the, further driving the gap between the rich and the poor in terms of their living environments, that's really going to show up in the way we sleep too. Green cover meaning trees. I'm assuming. That's right. Yeah, yes, go, that's go right. ahead, Indira. Yeah, a couple of things I want to say. One is um, we see a lot of chronic post-traumatic stress disorder in military veterans that had you know, life-threatening um, experiences. And then those experiences get relived in the form of nightmares or flashbacks during the daytime. And the result is just they're on, on guard all the time. And just I have patients who just are afraid to even turn the light out. You know, they won't even, they sleep with facing the door because they're worried about being attacked. So, and it doesn't have, to, and, as well as um, people who've survived any kind of trauma, but it turns out even people who have witnessed it can end up um, having a traumatic, post-traumatic stress disorder. But the good news is that there are treatments available yeah. and we've come a long way. Um, is, and so, you know, reach out for help if you're one of these people. And the other thing about climate change um Trees are really important, but the other thing we're noticing is uh, there was a huge study that came out that used um, basically uh, trackers, the the motion trackers, and um, found out that um, you know with climate change we're seeing experiencing a global increase in temperature, and as the temperature warms, we don't sleep as well. Huh. Our brains are exquisitely wired to sleep best at a certain temperature, and the warmer it gets, the harder it is to sleep. And the people again, in terms of um, 
equality and equity that the communities where they don't have access to um, uh, air conditioning uh, that are tropical or already warm to begin with, they're the ones that are going to be impacted the most. And so then the chronic effects of being chronically sleep deprived are going to be impacting their productivity, their economies, their safety and their health. And their mood. And their mood. Absolutely. It's it's hard to function when you haven't had enough sleep. Let me go to you, Jay, because you you talk about, uh, uh, there's a lot in your book that you talk about, but one is being able to figure out how to sort of emotionally discharge during the day so that at two in the morning you aren't obsessing about something that happened that day. And and I, you have a kind of an interesting description of uh, what to do it called, uh, called a, a mental um, litter box. That's right, a Can mental you, litter box. I think we know what you're because, talking about, but go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> because when you have a kitten and you don't teach it to, you know, if you don't potty train your kitten, it will pee all over your house, right? But if you designate a box for it to do its business, then it will only do its business in the box. We want to do that with our mind kittens too. Our brains love to wander all over the place, do all sorts of uh, mischief. And if we don't have the opportunity to do it, our business that our brain wants to do during the day, it will follow us into the night. And you know what's a perfect time to worry or strategize or ruminate and do all those things? That's when it's finally quiet and dark. No one's bothering you. Nothing's distracting you. It's just you and your brain. So at that point, if you haven't discharged those things, then you're kind of in trouble. And speaking of uh, dark and cool and quiet, um, Indira, should we make our bedrooms as as dark and cool and quiet as we can? Uh, Yeah, um, probably around 65, 67 degrees would be great. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, menopausal women really struggle with that. So that's another vulnerable community and vulnerable group. Because they're on fire. On fire all the time. So um, light layers are a good thing. Um, And then if you get warm, you just take them off. Um, and then talking to your doctor about making sure that if you're feeling excessively hot, that it's not masking a medical problem um, like thyroid uh, disorders, um, medication side effects. There are lots of other reasons to feel uncomfortable. So, um, yeah, but, but keeping your bedroom cool, dark and comfortable and your sleeping surface also comfortable. Um, you know, the they have, I have patients that ask me, which pillow should I buy? It's the one that feels right to you. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. And, yeah. Jane, oh, and one other thing yeah, I would ahead, say, it's, I have a lot of patients who have um, uh, allergies and stuffy nose and such, and um, um, dust mites are a really big problem, and they can accumulate over time in bedding. So it's really important to wash your sheets and linens in hot water at least weekly. Don't have feather or down in the bed because a lot of people are allergic to that. And all of that congestion can lead up to snoring or even um, sleep apnea. Jade, what happens when, let's say, a night owl shares a bed with an early bird? (laughs) We're talking about people sleeping in the same bed but have very different sleeping habits. Ah, the age-old question. And it's so (laughs) tough because people, understandably, want to go to bed together. They want to enjoy their intimacy and their closeness. Uh, But it's really tough because the night owl who goes to bed super early is going to have insomnia. Or the morning bird who, you know, stays up late with their partner is missing out on sleep. So what I advise is you can have separate rooms or separate places to sleep. You can still go to bed together and enjoy your bedtime routine and hang out and enjoy intimacy. And then 
the night owl can move to the other room and stay up and read or do something else relaxing until it, it is their time to actually turn out the lights to sleep. That way you get kind of a compromise where you get both, best of both worlds. So a bed for sleep and sex. Correct. And then at the other end of sleep, you have, if you have a night owl who wants to get up late and you have a morning lark who's using an early alarm, um, you know, it, there some adjustments need to be made there too. So maybe even using, um, you know, um, your earplugs to keep from waking up or use an alert system that doesn't bother the other person. What do you think about gadgets? I mean, gadgets that can tell you, oh, this is this is what you're doing or what your body and brain are doing while you're asleep. Yeah, well, that horse has left the barn. People are using them. All they, the are. they are. They're showing late, up I... and they, they relate to it as the truth. And that would be my, um, my suggestion is that it is sort of a hint at what might be happening, but it's not a perfect match for what we see in the sleep lab when we do official testing. Um, but if it's a change from before or if it correlates with some physical symptoms you're having during the day, then definitely seek help. Um, but what happens with these trackers is that if you lie very still in bed, it thinks you're asleep. And uh, if you're moving because you're having sleep apnea and every time you choke, your arms and legs flail, it's going to think you're awake when you're actually asleep and have a sleep disorder. So if you're a perfect sleeper, have no issues, then they're probably more accurate. But in anyone with right. any kind of a sleep disorder, then it, it becomes murky and confusing. So it can be wrong in both directions. It thinks you're asleep when you're awake and vice versa. What do you think, Jake? Well, as a... As a researcher, I'm really excited about the <laughs> new tech that allows us to, you know, look at sleep it's and expensive. Natural, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like 200 bucks a pop, whereas, you know, compared to thousands for, you know, traditional sleep measures. And so it's it's great on sort of a population level. But for individuals, for my own individual patients, I kind of go case by case. It depends. Like if I have someone who says, you know, I don't think alcohol is affecting my sleep that much. I would say, okay, wear a sleep tracker, track it alcohol. Let's see if there are any patterns. And they inevitably come back and say, okay, you were right. There were patterns. <laughs> I will drink less. Um, but if it's someone with insomnia who is really worried about their sleep, really kind of anxious and overly uh, paying overly a close attention to minute changes here and there, uh, then the tracker might actually backfire, give them orthosomnia. This is a term um, coined by Kelly Barron, one of our big researchers in our field. And it means the insomnia that you get from tracking your sleep. It's oh, almost wow. like the more you pay attention to it, the more it can backfire and make you more anxious. So I, I would say really case by case. Yeah, I think using it as biofeedback can be very helpful for some people who are in denial that their habits have anything to do with their sleep. <laughs> so it could be a really great educational tool. Right. Um, Here's and the data, a right? Lot, yeah, and, uh, like you do. You keep a diary of what did I eat, what did I drink today, and how much do I think I slept, and you corroborate it with your cool. your um, you know your tracker. Um, but again, as Jade said, I mm -hmm. find the same thing as well. That people who are excessively focused on it can end it can end up actually um, being counterproductive. And that's that control thing that we were talking about earlier. Exactly. And, and Jay, just to underscore what you said about alcohol. Alcohol has a negative effect on sleep, correct? Correct, yes. Because, I mean, let's be honest, alcohol is poison, right? I mean, I enjoy my wine every once in a while, but it really is poison that your body has to filter out and work really hard to do so. So it keeps your metabolism running, keeps your body temperature higher, and so that interrupts your sleep. Yeah, I we I have so many patients who will have a nightcap to unwind and go to sleep. 
Um, so great. Okay, it's helping you unwind and go to sleep. But then the problem happens as your brain burns off. As your body burns off the alcohol, your brain is now dealing with the withdrawal of the alcohol. So mm. what happens with what we call sleep architecture that we were talking about earlier is that that normal, beautiful, healthy progression from the different stages gets interrupted. So with the withdrawal of alcohol, your brain shifts into a lighter stage of sleep or com- you're completely awake. So the second half of the night, you end up not getting the restorative sleep. And the next day, you're just the brain fog and the exhaustion. And if you have sleep apnea, the other thing alcohol does is that it relaxes the nerve at the back of the throat that mm. controls the tongue. So it makes it easy for the tongue to collapse, which is why a lot of people snore when they drink. Um, but the people with apnea will actually have more apneas and longer apneas in the next day. And, and every time their throat chokes, uh, a burst of adrenaline comes to wake them up from sleep. Wow. So all night long they're doing this, and the next day, you know, they feel exhausted. We are nearly out of time. Jay, do you have a 20-second answer to naps, pro or con? Nap responsibly. I love naps. I think they can be the most wonderful thing for uh, for your cognitive function, for emotions, and just a nice refresher in the middle of the day. But if you do it too long or too late during the day, it's going to mess up your circadian clocks and interfere with your nighttime sleep. We have to leave it there. We are out of time. My thanks to both of you for joining us today on The Connection to talk about uh, the importance of sleep and what sleep actually is. Jade Wu, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. And again, her book is titled Hello Sleep. Indira, thank you for joining us today on The Connection as well. My pleasure. And uh, Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of the show. It's produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray Bessler. And we're going to close things out with the Beatles. And I'm only sleeping.